Hey, Max, are you ready to talk about something really scary? Sure. Good, because I'm going to talk about my childhood. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Welcome to Second to Die, the horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And I'm going to start off by telling you about my imaginary friend as a child. Okay, we can do that. Because I'm pretty sure I've told you before, but when I brought it up, you said you didn't remember, and it is memorable. I might, I really don't remember. It might come back to me when you tell it, so... Let's hear it. It's so good. So I already told Kimberly the story of my imaginary friend, and she put it on her podcast, The Dark Roast, ironically enough, also on their 10th episode. But I really want to talk about it here, too. So I have a lot of sleep issues, and I have my entire life. As you know, I sleepwalk, and I have trouble sleeping, and I have sleep paralysis. Anyway, so... I didn't have a normal imaginary friend as a child. My imaginary friend was named Wall Walker. <laughs> Wait, I think I actually do remember this story. Yeah, it's hard to forget. Wall Walker looked exactly like me. And he crawled up and down the walls of my bedroom and all over my ceiling. And his head would turn 180 degrees and he would stare at me. Did he, like, talk to you and stuff? Yes. Every now and then he would hang from my headboard and whisper in my ear that he was going to kill me. That sounds pretty normal. I was four. (laughs) Uh, And you told your parents about this? I did. I told my parents about this. And then, actually, my earliest memory of sleepwalking, so not in the house that you've seen, but, like, the house we lived in before that when I was really little... The bedroom I shared with my brother was at one end of a long hallway, and then my parents' bedroom was at the other. And I have no recollection of getting out of bed and walking. I just woke up halfway down the hallway screaming, he's going to kill me. I was not an easy child to raise. (laughs) No, that sounds pretty fun. How long did that last? I don't know. I mean, I was four. I don't have, like, the most memories of it. Yeah, that's fair enough. I don't think I had an imaginary friend as a kid. I mean, imaginary friends are terrifying just like overall, but I feel like most people just like talk to themselves and are talking to their imaginary friends. They don't have an imaginary friend that's telling them that they're going to kill them. Yeah. Anyway, tell me about what movie you're doing this week. So this week, I'm talking about the 2016 film Don't Hang Up, and I'll give everyone sort of a pre-warning right now. Normally when I do modern films, I don't really talk about the ending. I haven't done a lot of them, but I don't give away the ending because I feel like people may want to watch it. But generally my cutoff point is 2017, so this kind of falls right under it. Also, you don't want to watch this movie, so I'll just tell you everything that happens. Anyways, like I said, it came out in 2016. It was written by Joe Johnson, directed by Alexis Wattsbrot. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, and Damien Mace. And how did you find out about this movie? Oh, yeah. So this movie is the first movie I'm doing that was actually a suggestion. So somebody asked me to do this, and I'm doing it. So there's that. So if they suggested it because they loved it, I do apologize in advance because I am not super going to be 
very complimentary of this film. We still love you, Clay. It's okay. (laughs) So anyways, I'll go through the cast members real quick. There's not a lot of trivia and stuff about this movie. That doesn't happen a lot when you get the newer movies. But I will say, so Amazon has this thing when you watch movies on Amazon Prime, which I did, that they have these little like trivia remarks and stuff like that. And it's one of the things that I get a lot of my info on. But the only trivia thing that it said was literally somebody who clearly it's kind of a Wikipedia situation where it's very like audience slash viewer contributed. And so the only trivia thing that was written was someone put, it's the first movie that can actually kill you for watching it through sheer boredom and overwhelming anger. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) So that's what that's the review that I read going into this movie. So I was excited off the bat. Uh, The movie stars, really, it only stars two people. There is a character, Sam Fuller. He's played by Greg Sulkin. Most of these people you are probably not going to recognize, and I didn't either. But he is a London actor. He does an American accent in this movie, which is fine. The movie is a British film, but everybody in it is American. He is in quite a few things. I guess he's this character, Chase Stein, in Marvel's Runaways, which I I know neither of us watch. And he was also in four episodes of Pretty Little Liars. And then the other main, main character is Brady Mannion, played by Garrett Clayton, who is from Dearborn, Michigan. Shout out. He is pretty well known for playing Sean Lockhart, a.k.a. Brent Corrigan, in the movie King Cobra. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah. He's kind of a super cutie. And if you want to see his butt and you have the internet, then nothing is stopping you from that. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah. He also, last year, it's kind of interesting, got engaged to his boyfriend of nine years, Blake Knight. Oh, congratulations to them. Yeah. So, that's adorable. Anyways, there's a few other people in this movie, but I don't... They're not really worth mentioning, so I'm not going to. This movie is almost entirely these two people, and then a lot of phone calls. Because the other horrifying aspect of this movie is that people literally call instead of using text messages like all the time no thank you yeah firm pass so that's pretty much just the lead up to this movie there's not really much more to say about any of these people it's very whatever let's get into it it begins actually kind of promising there's it does this thing which is pretty common where there's like a lead-in intro scene and it lasts maybe like five or six minutes and it's this woman really quick she gets woken up at three something in the morning by her phone ringing and it's somebody basically saying that they're the police they have the house surrounded and that there are two suspects in her house that she needs to lock the door don't hang up the phone and she says that her door doesn't lock she pushes the dresser in front of the door and she's of course like freaking out they say they do this thing where they're like who else is in the house and she says that she has her daughters in the house but her husband is out of town then they kind of do this thing where they're like, one of the suspects has the daughter, but and they, they kind of like go overboard with this thing where they make it sound like the police are surrounding this house and this deranged person like has her daughter. So she's, of course, like freaking out. She drops her phone at one point and it slides under the bed. And then the phone you hear, you've been pranked, but she doesn't hear it. And then it cuts. So you don't really know what happened after that. I'll point out one of my biggest problems with this movie is after this scene, I knew exactly what the plot of this movie was going to be. I knew who the killer was going to be. I knew why the killer was going to be. And 
I was like, well, maybe there will be some sort of a twist that I won't see coming. And that is just not the case. And movies that are that predictable bother me so much. So that's kind of where I went into it. But that scene is well filmed. I'll give it that. It is very anxiety inducing up until the pranked part. It's pretty cool. And then they have this montage scene with this sort of upbeat sort of tween music happening and they introduce us to what you think are all the characters of the movie which it is all the characters of the movie but like i said only two of them matter so i don't know why it goes through this montage yeah but for the fact that literally all of the male characters in this movie kind of look the same so they basically do this montage so they can flash everyone's name under them so you know who's who and the first person they introduce you to is this youtuber uh his name is roy but he goes by prank monkey 69 just so that you know he does these prank videos to be like a viral sensation. That's his whole shtick. Those guys tend to be problematic and usually end up sending their nudes to underage girls. Yeah, that does happen. Not in this movie, but... You don't know his backstory. I don't really know his backstory. But things don't work out for him, I'll tell you that. So the only two that really matter, like I said, are Sam and Brady. So that's that. Okay, so after that, you kind of get, I guess it's to set up Sam's backstory, but this scene, actually, I was literally laughing out loud to it, which is very appropriate to use that language, because what this scene is, is it basically cuts to Sam going through his laptop, and he's on his iTunes account, and it doesn't say it outright, but it's very clear that him and this girl that he's been dating, her name is Peyton, are on the rocks. So he's sitting at his computer, and the camera is like showing what he's scrolling through, and he immediately puts on Ed Sheeran's Thinking Out Loud... And then that's the music for the rest of this scene. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it was so this dumb. Is not music. Oh, no. And then he's like scrolling through like his pictures of her and like Insta stalking her and stuff like that. And just like thinking out loud is playing. And it's just him like looking through pictures of her. And it also has this like really kind of stalkery part where he's like opening up her DMs and like typing out all these different things to say to her and then deleting them. Some of them are like, what's up with this new status update? And things like that. Like, I don't know. Like, leave her alone, dude. Oh, boy. Yeah. Clearly, she doesn't want you. Anyway, so then Brady sneaks up on him for whatever reason. He, I don't even know how he got into the house now that I'm thinking about it. But he comes into the house and he, like, tries to, like, scare him. And Sam was, like, calls him a jerk or something like that. And then Brady literally leans over and licks Sam's ear up to the top of his head i don't know why that happened but i'll say that they have like some noticeable sexual tension and chemistry in this movie and like from here on out like a whole different version of this film was playing in my head there is a lot of porn out there about the guy who just broke up with his girlfriend and his gay best friend offers to console him yeah well when i tell you what happens in this movie i'll let you know because my version of this movie in my head was a lot more interesting and makes a lot more sense. So anyways, we'll continue. Uh, also worth noting, Sam's parents are out of town for the weekend. And so Brady and him are going to hang out. Oh. Well, I think they were talking about throwing a party. But then they were like, yeah, we're inviting Prank Monkey. And Sam's like, I don't like him. But he's like, I already invited him. But then Prank Monkey never shows up. So it's not it's not really a party. Oh, boy. It's like three guys in one room, which is only a party to certain people. There's also a lot of porn that's that. Yeah. So anyways, Brady is like, let's do a bunch of prank calls because I don't know. Do people still do that? I feel like prank or crank calling like when I was a kid, people would kind of do that. But I feel like that's not really a thing anymore. 
It wasn't even a thing when I was a child, so. Well, I don't know. I didn't really have friends, so I didn't have people to do that with. So maybe it was. Yeah. I don't, they also, like, do a thing. Like, they order a pizza to their neighbor's house. I was like, is that still funny anymore? I don't know. It was really dumb. So anyways, there's a big montage of them doing that. And then the montage kind of ends when this voice comes on that sounds suspiciously like the same vocoder used in the movie Scream. And the guy is basically talking to them and being all creepy. And then they hang up on him, even though he tells them not to. Then there's a conversation where Brady is talking to Sam about how he's going to join the Marines. I don't know why this is relevant, but it is. And then Sam is just talking about how much he's going to miss him. And then, like, they have this little phrase where they're like, brothers forever. And they say that a few times throughout the movie, even though they're not really brothers. And I'm just sitting there the whole time like, God, make out already, would you? No, Jesus. Yeah. So then that creepy vocoder guy calls back. He calls like a stalker number of times, like a crazy amount of times. And then they keep ignoring him. But finally they answer and he knows Brady's name and address. And so then they're like, oh, my God, this is so creepy. You know my name and address. And he tells them to call him Mr. Lee. So the guy on the phone is now called Mr. Lee. So then for some reason, Peyton shows up delivering a pizza. But they're like, we didn't order a pizza. And she leaves. And apparently Mr. Lee, like, ordered them a pizza. That's, I guess, terrifying. Well, the pizza had anchovies, so it's, like, super terrifying. I like anchovies on pizza. It's a nice burst of saltiness. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's move along from that. Okay, so then, basically, uh, I'm going to speed things along. Brady gets a Snapchat where his parents are tied up in a chair, both of them in their underwear, which is unsettling, probably on a lot of levels. But Brady immediately hangs up and calls 911, but... The 911 operator is also Mr. Lee. And then they try to call 911 from a cell phone. And it's also Mr. Lee. Bum, bum, bum. And it's... This makes no sense. The amount of suspension of disbelief in this movie on a technological level is outrageous. Things happen that could not possibly happen. Like, there's no way that this guy hacked both the landline and the cell phone to what route, like, every call to him. It just makes no sense. But whatever. We're supposed to ignore that. So, anyways. Then we also realize at one point that Mr. Lee is... He knows exactly what's happening in the house, and they figured out that they have their laptop open, and he's watching through their laptop webcam. Shout out to the NSA agent that keeps an eye on me and gives me targeted ads. Thank you so much. You have great taste. Yeah, exactly. And then he turns on this... He basically turns their TV on remotely somehow and streams this video of him suffocating Prank Monkey, the Prank Monkey character. Ooh, with what? A plastic bag, and it's, honestly, the scene is not scary at all, partly because it's so overacted, because he puts the bag over the guy's head, and the guy immediately starts, like, thrashing and gasping, but, like, that's not how people suffocate. Like, that doesn't happen like that. So, I was like, eh, this is dumb. Also, okay, so, here's my thing, and no one come and find me and try and suffocate me with a plastic bag as a means of disproving me, but... When plastic is stretched tight, you can break through it with a fingernail very easily. And in movies, people always reach up towards their neck and are trying to, like, pry it away. Open your mouth wide and shove your finger in your mouth. Pop the plastic and start breathing. Well, his hands were tied down. Okay, never mind then. So he couldn't have done that. He could have maybe. to be him. So anyways, that happens. And then the power goes out. Of course it does. Yeah. So let me just right now say that this movie loves making the power go out. 
It loves it so much that it makes the power go off and on multiple times for no reason, just to get this effect of the power going out and having it be like, oh my God, the power went out. But it does this like legitimately like five or six times. Is it set in New Orleans where we once (laughs) lost power because a cat walked into a generator? (laughs) No, I think it's supposed to be set in like a real city where like utilities actually work. So anyway, so Sam goes upstairs after that. It doesn't matter why. It's really dumb. But Brady's in the living room and Mr. Lee is talking to Brady through the TV screen. How is this happening? I don't know. This movie makes no sense. So he tells Brady that if he wants to save his parents' life, he needs to do something in return. It doesn't explicitly say it, but he's like, I want a life for a life. So obviously they want Brady to kill Sam. It's like not even remotely subtle. But they don't say it just because we're supposed to, I guess, be wondering, well, what's the deal he made? I don't know. Anyway, so Sam runs downstairs because he kind of realizes that their friend Mosley is at the back door being killed. And sure enough, they open the door. He dies. It's, it's, it's an okay death scene. But they then put a sheet over him and leave because I guess if you don't see it, it's not there. So there's a bunch of dumb stuff where Brady is talking about wanting to run away with Sam, which is like a really good story arc in the alternative version of this movie in my head. But for the actual movie was really, really dumb and completely pointless. And they argue a lot. They struggle. They kind of wrestle around. Yeah. And then Mr. Lee reveals that he has kidnapped Peyton after she tried to deliver the pizza. And Sam then gets up and he starts yelling at the TV like, Peyton, can you hear me? Peyton, can you hear me? And it's like, that's not how TVs work. Like, he knows they're not talking directly to him, right? When he watches a show. (laughs) Gosh. Oh, boy. All right. Yeah. So then Mr. Lee tells Sam that he'll let Peyton go if he kills Brady. So obviously, he's made the same bargain with both of them. So Sam is kind of like considering it. He then zip ties Brady's wrist to the banister because Brady is talking about just like making a run for it. But he doesn't want Brady to leave because he doesn't want people to get killed. So then the power goes out again. It had gone on because the TV had to come on for a plot point. But then they cut it again so that we can all like gasp in horror and shock. Kind of like how in high school, if the power went out, everyone screamed unnecessarily. Yeah. So even with the power going out, the TV still comes on. Because I I don't know. I guess like this movie just doesn't know how electricity works. So... When it comes on this time, there's a little girl on the screen, and her name is Izzy, and she's saying stuff like, she misses her daddy, she can't wait till he gets back, and so, like, basically, this is the part where all my suspicions from the first five minutes in this movie were completely confirmed, and I realized that myself, and probably any other normal person, would have correctly guessed the plot from this movie, and so now I'm just kind of, like, a little annoyed. Even though I knew this would happen, I'm still annoyed that... I, I had I was holding out that maybe I was wrong and there was going to be some sort of big twist that like, oh, my God, I don't know it. You know, I don't know. Like maybe they were dead the whole time, but they weren't. So anyways. God. Yeah. So then the lights come back on because I I guess that's just what they do. OK, so then Sam goes on Facebook because he recognizes the girl and realizes that he had a friend request from this little girl named Izzy from a while ago, which he ignored, which is good. Like. If you're a grown man, do not accept a friend request from a five-year-old girl. Yeah. Is he a grown man or are they supposed to be teenagers? Well, they're teenagers in high school. Close enough, though. If you're in your teens and, like, a five-year-old friend requests you, don't. And in real life, they're definitely in their mid-20s. Well, so the character who plays Brady was born in 91. And this movie came out in 2016. 
So yeah, mid twenties. Yeah, he's not high school age. So anyways, so they find on her profile, they go to the girl's profile, even though he had deleted the friend request. It's a public profile. And it's a bunch of pictures of like him and his friends, like Sam and Brady and Mosley. Mosley and Prank Monkey. Prank Monkey. Yeah. And then there's also this video that he finds that is basically a picture of Brady and Peyton having sex. And basically it's sort of the end of it. And then Peyton realizes she's being recording and getting all upset. Which, by the way, that is a felony. So if somebody ever does that for you, that's probably not good. And don't do that to other people. Thank you. So then the lights come back on because I guess they're going to have to cut them out again in a little bit, which they do. So the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So then like they try to have this big twist where Sam realizes from a clock in the videos that Mr. Lee's showing them that these videos of like Brady's parents and stuff like that are actually from like two hours before, like they're pre-recorded. And I think that's supposed to be this big, like, oh, my God, blah, blah, blah. So Sam kind of realizes that nothing they do is going to save these people because this was hours ago. So he's already decided whether or not he's going to kill them. Yeah. Whatever. So then, like I predicted, the power goes out again. This is like the fourth, fifth time? It's something like that. I mean, they just love doing it. I don't understand. But they do. It doesn't make sense. Anyway, keep going. Yeah. So then they hear somebody in the house. And Brady is basically telling Sam to run and that Brady is going to cover him and make sure he gets away. And Sam tells Brady, I'm not leaving without you. And it is like the sexual tension is palpable in this moment. It's good. So kiss, 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 kiss. kiss. I know. So Sam is like, we can leave together because everyone's already dead. And it is definitely this is like the peak of the romantic arc of my personal version of this movie. (laughs) But that's not how it works out in this home. Essentially, they open the door because they're going to leave together. And Brady pushes Sam out and closes it and locks Sam out, which I guess is supposed to be like this big act of heroism. And he's sacrificing everyone for the one he loves because Brady thinks Mr. Lee's in the house. So Brady is going to make sure Sam gets away. And then Brady is going to go find Mr. Lee to try to kill him, I Uh guess, or do something. It's actually not quite clear. But Sam doesn't run away because I don't know. I guess because he loves Brady. And if he did it, this movie would not make even as much sense as it kind of does so then sam is outside locked outside he's got a baseball bat and he sees this like white raper van that had a you could kind of see in one of the videos and he goes in and he finds peyton tied up um she's still alive at this point so anyways this movie tries to pull like a slumber party massacre where brady goes outside and he finds mosley's body in the backyard but then he's like wait i thought we put that sheet over mosley's body so whose body did i step over when i came outside and then it's like oh my god shocker it was the killer the problem is it serves no purpose because it's not like they're in the room and then the killer gets up like rises from the sheet to like surprise them he's in the backyard so then the killer comes up from behind him but the killer could have done that just like hiding in a broom closet. Like, it doesn't make any sense to do it that way. Yeah, that sounds stupid. I think it's just that the director thought the idea that this guy was under the sheet when like he walked right past him is somehow worthwhile. But it's not worthwhile without a payoff. Yeah. And that is the problem I had with a lot of the quote unquote twists in this movie is that they're either predictable or completely useless and nonsensical from a plot perspective. So, okay, so Sam goes into the house and he's looking for Brady and he's like calling out his name, which seems like a really poor choice because if the killer's in the house, he's literally basically just announcing his presence. Marco. Yeah, it's 100%. And they try to do this thing to make it really creepy. It's semi-successful where they splice in little snippets from the girl Izzy's video, like little sound bites. 
and also like some children's rhymes and like nursery rhymes and stuff. Oh, it, did they do Ring Around the Rosie? Because that is hands down just horrifying. It's not Ring Around the Rosie. What is it? Oh, it's Hush Little Baby. There we go. Okay, so then Sam basically hears Peyton screaming because she found Mosley's body. Also, he had just like left her in the backyard, which seems like a weird choice, but it doesn't matter because he's in love with Brady anyways. Then he goes to run out and find Peyton. And then in another one of the dumbest scenes, which I think was supposed to end up in this like huge twist culmination. Mr. So Mr. Lee, I'd forgotten to mention in the videos is wearing this mask. It's like a full head covering mask. So then supposedly, assumedly, Mr. Lee comes out stumbling, wielding a knife, wearing the mask. And Sam's like, oh, I have to fight him and kill him because this is Mr. Lee. It is so obviously Brady. Like, they did that thing where it's like, really, it's Brady in the mask? Yeah. His hands are literally duct taped together at the wrist, making him wield a knife. So he can't drop the knife, like, and be defensively. And he's not saying anything. And he's stumbling around. And Sam is like, oh, I'm going to kill him. This must be the killer. Because the killer would totally duct tape a knife to his own hands. Like, it makes no sense. (sighs) Yeah, so then... Obviously, Sam stabs him and kills him and realizes that it's Brady and he's killed the love of his life in my version. And in No, the- no, no, no. That's really what was going on here. Yeah. So then he gets all like upset and I'm like, what kind of an idiot didn't realize that's exactly what was happening? I mean, it is not subtle. It's anyway. Brady deserved better. Yeah. I mean, it's just so ultra predictable. This whole movie was so ultra predictable that any shock value was just gone. So then the real Mr. Lee comes out and Sam is like, I don't understand why you're doing this to us. When it's like, really? Because it took me literally two seconds to figure out why he's doing it to you. And then Mr. Lee says, I'm simply returning the favor of the night that you and your friends called my house. And I'm like, oh, so this person is clearly exactly who I thought he was, which is the husband who was out of town. And something must clearly have happened to that woman. I didn't know exactly what happened, and I will tell you because it's the last scene of the movie where it sort of tells it, but it, I knew it was going to be the husband that was out of town. Yeah. So anyways, then it flashes us back. So we see what happened, and long story short, the woman didn't hear that it was a prank. She grabs a gun. She goes in the hallway. She doesn't see anybody. Her little girl, Izzy, is missing from the bed, and then the bathroom door opens, and she shoots through the bathroom door without seeing who it is and shoots the little girl and kills her, which... I don't know. That seems kind of dumb. And then she goes and realizing that she's killed her, shoots herself. Yeah. So there's that. So then Mr. Lee pulls out a gun and he's like holding the gun to Sam's head and is like, you have to suffer the same way I suffered. And Peyton is screaming and he's holding the gun to Sam's head. And no joke, in my notes, I literally started to write, but he kills Peyton instead because obviously that's the only way that he would be able to suffer the same way he did. And then it cuts away to a wide shot of the house. You hear a gun go off and you're like, oh, my God, he killed Sam. But no, he didn't. He killed Peyton. And then the next scene is basically a picture of Sam where he like comes to and he's holding a knife and a gun. And then the police come and they surround the house and they're like, put down your weapons, put down your weapons. And he doesn't put down his weapons. (laughs) Instead, he does this dumb scene where he's like holding the weapons on his knees, looking up. And it's like an overhead shot of him going, no. God. it's so dumb then like you hear on the news that the the story is that sam found this video of peyton and brady sleeping together and went in a rage and killed them so that honestly also would be completely unbelievable and there's also probably all this other evidence that we're just going to ignore exists that he did not do that anyways the end right no not quite the end 
because there's still room for one more shitty dumb thing. Oh, boy. So then there's this super short scene of another guy that we don't know who he is. He's not important. Uploading a prank video with captions and stuff to YouTube or something like that. And then he receives a friend request from an account called Izzy. And he clicks ignore. And then spooky music and credits roll. It's almost like they're setting up for a sequel. But psych, you've been pranked because there will never be a sequel to this piece of shit movie. (laughs) (laughs) The end. My final thoughts on this movie is just that the level of predictability was atrocious. It was not interesting at all. If you watch it with the alternative movie of the love story of Sam and Brady in your head that I've created, it is a better movie. So clearly I should have directed this. And very tragic. And very tragic. But if you just take it on face value, it's so dumb. I just don't like movies where you know exactly what's going to happen from the get-go. And then they try to act like they're including these big twists and stuff because they're not twists. Yeah, that sounds pretty awful. There are some times that you do a movie and I'm like, I wouldn't mind watching that. Not this one. Yeah, the first, to be truthful, the first five minutes, like I said, are pretty well done. And it kind of makes you think, oh, this movie could be okay. And then it's just like, it's really not. I don't know. So that's basically that for Don't Hang Up. Not good. So now instead, tell me what you're going to talk about. Well, as some of our more astute listeners may have guessed, I talked about my imaginary friend because this week I am doing Imaginary Friend by Stephen Chbosky. So it came out in autumn of last year. For those of you playing at home, yes, he is the author of The Perks of Being a Wallflower. So a bit of a detour. He went from writing a relatively short YA to a chonker of a horror novel that clocks in at just over 700 pages. Yeah, I don't know who he is. Or the perks of being a wallflower, but... Oh my god. (laughs) You're like super moody ass would love the perks of being a wallflower. I'm not moody. I'm a a gem. You're a gem. You're a moody unicorn. Anyway, the cover... I actually love the cover, despite it being super simple. I find it very striking. So it's a silhouette of a child gazing up at a treehouse, which will very obviously play in. But I actually really like the lettering, because it's like scratched in it looks very much like someone carved the lettering into the trunk of a tree yes it sparks joy i enjoy it but anyway so the blurb is surprisingly short given the fact that the book itself is ginormous with like tiny print too single mother kate reese is on the run determined to improve her life for herself and her son christopher she flees an abusive relationship in the middle of the night with her child Together, they find themselves drawn to the tight-knit community of Mill Grove, Pennsylvania. It's as far off the beaten track as they can get. Just one highway in, one highway out. At first, it seems like the perfect place to finally settle down. But then Christopher vanishes. For six long days, no one can find him. Until Christopher emerges from the woods at the edge of town, unharmed, but not unchanged. He returns with a voice in his head only he can hear, with a mission only he can complete. Build a treehouse in the woods by Christmas, or his mother and everyone in town will never be the same again. Okay. That's interesting. Bum, bum, bum. Anyway, quick content warning. During my discussion of this book, there will be a very brief mention of suicide as well as a very brief mention of child abuse. I realized that I did a content warning in episode one but did not do any for any of the other books that talked about kind of more intense topics, which I'm learning more and more just show up a lot in horror books. So I'm just trying to warn people. 
So I'm not going to give you a full rundown of the plot because, like I said, it is a 700-page book and it is actually very well done and very dense and that would honestly take two or three episodes. Plus, it was really fun to read. So know that I am barely scratching the surface here. So if you are interested in what I'm saying, I may be talking about like a fifth of what happens. It's also packed with a lot of metaphors about trauma and the human experience and things like that. And I am not going to go English major on this podcast. They're really well done. Read them and see them for yourself. I want to talk about the horror stuff. So as we know from the blurb, Kate and Chris are moving to Millgrove. Chris is only seven and a half. Christopher, I think they call him the full Christopher, the whole book. I called him Chris in my notes because I handwrite my notes. He's super traumatized because when he was four, his dad slashed his wrists in the bathtub and Christopher was the one who found him. Yeah. Okay. Like you do. So in this town, Millgrove, where they move, there are the Mission Street Woods. And we know from the very opening scene of the book, because much like your movie, this book had like the intro scene sort of thing, that a little boy named David wandered into the woods 50 years earlier and he never came back out. We actually learned later on from a flashback that his older brother was babysitting him and heard crying on the porch and it was a stroller with a recorder in it. But while he was distracted, David disappeared. Which, I don't know if that's ever really happened. I think there was a serial killer who did that to try and lure women out. But I also know it was like an urban legend thing that rolled around on Tumblr for a really long time. Was the whole concept of, if you hear a baby crying on your porch, don't open the door. I don't know. I could see that being sort of like an urban legend. It doesn't sound familiar to me. I also spend a lot more time on the internet than you do. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, it reminds me a little bit of the Black Eyed Children, but... Oh my god, I love the Black Eyed Kids. But yeah, I guess it's a little bit different. I mean, if I saw a baby crying on my porch, I would not open the door, I can tell you that much. Yeah, uh-uh. No, thank you. No, thank you. Speaking of the Black Eyed Kids, someone knocked on Kimberly's front door, and when she checked her security footage, because she has a security camera out there, uh, there was no one there. And I could have been really mean and told her about the Black Eyed Kids, <laughs> because she was live texting me while this was happening, and I didn't, because I am such a good brother. anyway so much of the beginning of the story is actually really lovely christopher and his mom don't have very much money but she does that whole like going above and beyond to make sure he never knows how poor they are it's super super clear just how much she loves him when he comes back from disappearing in the woods he's super super smart And gets a perfect score on a quiz. And she uses the answers from the quiz to get a lottery ticket. And they win a modest sum from that that she uses to buy a house. Like, there was literally a point where I thought to myself, I could just stop reading here. And these people would just be happy. (laughs) Because I will say, like, Stephen Shabosky, he's so good at characterization. You care about these characters. And so you have this like super heartwarming, the family that's struggling is finally able to put down roots. They're finally able to buy a nice house. There's like this really beautiful scene where she's like, let's go find you a bookcase because he was dyslexic before disappearing in the woods, but then he popped out of the woods, like really loving reading. So there's this really heartwarming scene where they go to like a secondhand furniture store and she's like, let's pick a bookcase for like the first bedroom you've ever had to yourself kind of thing. 
It's just so sweet. But this is a horror podcast and not the Hallmark Channel. So let's start talking about when everything gets really fucked up. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, happiness is not entertaining anyways. So when Christopher comes back from disappearing, he keeps talking about a nice man that helped him out. And when the sheriff goes and investigates the woods, he only sees one set of footprints from where Christopher came out. So it's determined that the nice man is actually Christopher's imaginary friend. But Christopher starts talking to the nice man, like seems to be able to see the nice man in a plastic bag. Like there's a, a like a Walmart bag that represents the nice man in the real world. It's very odd. But he also feels compelled to build a treehouse. And while he and his friends are building this treehouse, which I'm summarizing literally like 150 pages with that single sentence, there's a lot that happens, a lot of good stuff in those 150 pages. But again, uh, while they're building the treehouse, they find the body of David, the kid who disappeared. He had been buried alive and he is tangled in the roots of the tree. A tree, by the way, that when Christopher touches it, it feels like flesh underneath his fingers. And at one point, he and his friends are dozing off, and one of the branches of the tree strokes Christopher's hair until he falls asleep. This is like a tree spirit situation or something? Uh, I can guarantee you, you will not guess what's going on with the tree. Okay. A hundred and ten percent, because it's out of left field. So when Christopher finally finishes the treehouse, he goes inside, and he closes the door, and he appears in the imaginary world. This is like a real imaginary world or in his head? So his body is in the treehouse. Okay. But his, like, spirit, I guess, is in the treehouse in the imaginary world. Okay. Because the imaginary world is an exact replica of the real world. Except for some odd reason, I kept picturing it in black and white. And I can't remember if that's explicitly stated in the text. But for some odd reason, it was grayscale in my head. And while he's there, he finds the nice man. And so the nice man is, like, showing him the ropes And he tells him that he has to avoid the hissing lady. But it's okay because if he comes to the imaginary world during the daytime, the hissing lady can't see him. And if if she does, he can run into the street because she can't step onto the pavement. Okay. I'm intrigued. There are also a bunch of people that Christopher refers to as mailbox people. Because the way they are standing completely still reminds him of mailboxes. These people are not the people from the town in the real world. Their eyes and mouths are sewn shut, and they're all holding on to a piece of string that's connecting them all. It's kind of like, in a weird way, to be honest, it's kind of like Silent Hillish, which I don't know how much you know about. You have not seen or played Silent Hill, correct? No, but I watched like the first five minutes. No, okay. I know that like the little girl wakes up screaming Silent Hill over and over again, and that's when I stopped. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I know nothing about it. Sorry. I should have just clarified from there. Anyway, anyway we, can, we can move on. I'm not going to say anything more. It's obviously going to be very different, but it sounds like it has that kind of like horror aesthetic of like just like really disturbing imagery. Yes, definitely. There's like a man dressed as a Girl Scout and he's asleep. But one time when Christopher goes at night, he's awake because that's when like all of the citizens of the imaginary world wake up. And the guy dressed as a Girl Scout is, like, kidnapping little girls. Yeah. Well, that part's not okay. But, I mean, if you are a grown man and you want to wear a Girl Scout's uniform, I feel like you should be able to do that. In appropriate environments, 
We support you. <laughs> exactly. But don't kidnap Girl Scouts. That's, we draw the line there. Yeah. Just eat your cookies and be satisfied. Yes, exactly. The Girl Scouts are really just a well-disguised cookie company. Anyway, we should offer to put like the unedited <laughs> episodes up on a Patreon or something. I feel like we say the most fucked up random shit to each other that always ends up having to be cut. Anyway. Uh, so in the meantime of all of Christopher's adventures in the imaginary world, because to get back to the real world, all he has to do is go back to the treehouse in the imaginary world. We find out that anytime he touches someone in the real world, he leaves a burn-like mark that leads to illness and madness. So this little kid can't touch people then? Pretty much. He gets like superpowers. Okay. But they're not like happy superpowers. But, for example, he touches his teacher, who is an alcoholic, and she suddenly cannot get drunk anymore. Which sounds like a good thing, except she gets really frustrated (laughs) and angry because she can't get drunk. Yeah, well, I mean, there are bigger problems in the world right now, lady. Get with the program. He also touches his classmate, Jenny, who is, like, a super rude little bitch. And it makes her develop the urge to fight back against her stepbrother because it wouldn't be this podcast if we didn't talk about the molestation of children because her teenage stepbrother has been molesting her. Uh, Well, it sounds like his touch does good things then. Well, by fight back, I mean it makes her want to kill him. I mean... I know. (laughs) Not necessarily a bad thing, but I guess it's not like his touch gave her the courage to tell her parents. It was his touch made her want to take a knife that's fair enough okay but we're gonna talk about one specific character that he touches we're gonna talk about mary Catherine, mary k special k she is a teenager and she has she's actually the one who found him when he stumbled out of the woods um and she babysits him a couple of times and things like that she is catholic well i mean her name is mary Catherine. it's pretty catholic she's very catholic She's so Catholic, in fact, that she constantly obsesses over the concept of sin, though I feel like that's a pretty Catholic thing to do. But the really weird shit that she does is she is so absorbed in the concept of sin that she is terrified that she will accidentally sin without realizing that she did in between confessions, get in a car crash and die and go to hell because she didn't confess the sin that she accidentally did. That's fair enough. So when she's driving, she prays the entire time to God and says, let me hit a deer if there is a sin that I haven't confessed for. (laughs) And if she gets to where she's going safely, she takes that as a sign from God that she has not sinned. She's unstable. She's a lot. But let's talk about her burn because the change that her burn causes is it makes her very horny. (laughs) Because of course it does. All right. So she decides that she's going to walk to her boyfriend's house. And then she blows him in his car. I mean, I don't see a problem here. It's just so out of character for her because she she's not that kind of girl. <laughs> Who hasn't blown a couple people in their cars? Let's be real. Uh, yeah. Well, clearly he's never gotten blown in a car because it takes about two seconds. And then he ruins her sweater. We were all in middle school once. This is high school. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Maximilian. 
Oh, boy. Okay. Then, while she is walking back to her house, uh, deer keep blocking her path. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, I completely forgot to mention. In the imaginary world, the deer bark. (laughs) That sounds adorable to me. Viciously. (laughs) Um, Anyway, the deer are actually, like, the scariest part of this book. Because when you think about it, like, deer are so silent and so... Honestly, like vaguely creepy. They can be creepy, but they have those like big brown, soulful, like intelligent looking eyes. So imagine just like walking down the road at night and out of the woods comes like a herd of deer. And then they steer you to the fucking tree house where Mary Kay falls asleep. So she followed the deer. No, the deer like forced her. Oh, okay. Like they blocked her way and basically made like. Okay. I don't know, like barricades on either side of her and forced her to the treehouse. And she climbed up into the treehouse and fell asleep. Okay. Well, she wakes up from the treehouse, goes home, continues living her life until she realizes that she's pregnant. But did her and her boyfriend ever have sex? No. Mm. And oddly enough, as someone who had abstinence only sex education, I can understand where it would be confusing. She was fully aware that giving him a blowjob did not get her pregnant. <laughs> Just as a PSA to our listeners. Giving blowjobs does not get you pregnant. In fact, it's a great way to avoid it. Anyway, so her parents find out that she's pregnant and they're like, tell me who it is. Tell me who it is. They're getting very angry. And she's like, but I'm still a virgin, but I'm still a virgin. And her parents are getting really mad because she's lying. And then she's like, no, it's immaculate. So they institutionalize her. So let's get back to Christopher. Christopher ends up getting in a car accident. And while he's unconscious, he is trapped in the imaginary world. Because I forgot to mention that also when Christopher sleeps, he's in the imaginary world. No matter where he is. Correct. Okay. So when he's unconscious, he ends up in the imaginary world. And the nice man is helping him try and figure out how to get out while he is basically like brain dead in the hospital. And it is at this point that the nice man reveals that he has been in the imaginary world. This story takes place in modern times for just over 2000 years. And Christopher notices scars on his hands and feet. Like what kind of scars? Like punctures, perhaps from a large nail oh, attaching man. you to a cross. This is getting real Jesus-y. Yep. <laughs> Meanwhile, everyone in the real world is going insane. Some more examples of that. Uh, Another classmate of Christopher's, who is named Brady, tries to kill his mom while she is in the bathtub. And when she jumps out, she falls and hits her head. And after that, she immediately gets up. She had been renovating her bathroom, so there was paint. She immediately covers herself in paint and then starts chugging the paint. Gross. Yes, very Christopher's friend Eddie is in a Chuck E. Cheese and there he witnesses a birthday clown make a balloon deer and shoot it with a toy gun. And then he makes a balloon clown, pulls out a real gun and shoots himself in front of the children. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It's not funny except that it's a clown. So it's funny. Also, just like the stunned faces on the children. God, it's trauma. So, back to Mary Kay. 
Her parents have decided to take her out of the institution and they are going to put her in front of the congregation so that she can confess to having, I don't know, allowed someone with a penis to defile her sacred lady garden or something. That's also not how confession works. As somebody who grew up in a Catholic family, that's not a thing. But she still insists that the baby was immaculately conceived. So the congregation decides that they are going to stone her to death. And only once she confesses to her parents that she, I guess, like gave her boyfriend a blowjob, do they break free of this spell and help her escape. So the whole congregation was under a spell as well. Basically. At this point, like everyone in town has gone insane. Okay. I mean, I was going to say, you don't like stoning people is not really a thing in this country, at least. I wouldn't know. I'm not Catholic. I mean, people get stoned, but they don't get stoned. Lord. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Meanwhile, everyone in town is heading to the tree where the school librarian, shout out to librarians, (laughs) not really, where the school librarian is sewing their mouths and eyes shut before ordering them to go hang themselves in the tree to be a gruesome metaphor for a Christmas tree. Okay. Full of hanging bodies. While all of this is happening, basically the entire last, like, 300 pages of this book takes place over the course of, like, an hour, all simultaneously. Chris is fighting for his life in the imaginary world, and his mother is racing to solve the mystery of everything going on in the real world. And that's when we find out you are complaining about not having a good twist in your movie. Here's your twist. Turns out that the nice man is the devil and the hissing lady is God's daughter and the only thing keeping him in hell. So it's not Jesus. Nope, he's the devil. Straight up Satan. The imaginary world is hell. The tree is the tree of knowledge. Oh, like from Eden. Yep. Which I guess is an attempt to explain why it feels like flesh and strokes Christopher's hair. But I don't remember that from the Bible. So... Why is all of this happening? Like, how is this going to help him escape from hell? Well, escaping from hell involves getting a key from the hissing lady. Okay. But it's like embedded in her flesh. So is some of the weird stuff like the hanging, like the people hanging themselves with sewn mouths and eyes, that is that just like kind of weird and evil to be for the sake of being weird and evil? Basically. Okay. So, yeah, basically to get out of hell, he has to get the key from the hissing lady who's actually God's daughter. So actually not the bad guy. And then there's like a big final battle against the devil and his evil. And it's honestly really well done. So I'm not going to talk about it because I want people to want to read it. The only other crazy thing, I guess, is that at the very end, we learn that the hissing woman is Eve. Which, at this point, the Christian metaphors were so all over the place that I honestly just rolled my eyes. Why do they call her the hissing woman? Just because? I When she talks, it's like a hissing thing. She's all, like, old and decrepit and shit. Well, I mean, she's really old. Well, yeah, I guess. But at the very end, she ascends to heaven. And God is like, you did such a good job, Eve. <laughs> And it's clearly supposed to be this, like, massive twist. And I'm just like, hmm. Okay. Then there's an epilogue where basically everyone lives happily ever after, except for Mary Kay, because it is very heavily hinted that she is carrying the child of Satan. Oh, like, he got her 
pregnant somehow. Well, because remember, she fell asleep in the treehouse. Yes. Mm. She didn't even remember her first time. This book was really interesting. I actually really enjoyed reading it as much as I am not a huge fan of Christian metaphors. It is really well done. The characters are really interesting. The story was really interesting. I did notice that there were a lot of elements of other horror stories in it. So you mentioned Silent Hill. Yes. But kind of the overall vibe of like Christopher and his friends building the treehouse and like everyone preparing to do this battle against the great evil. It felt very, very Stephen King's it. Yeah. When you I was just thinking that as you were describing it that way. Yeah. It like very strongly this whole like bond of friendship between children, that sort of thing. It felt very strongly like that. And then there is actually a part in it. I didn't even want to mention the part in it because I don't want to give anything away from a future episode. But there is a part of it that is very reminiscent of The Pen Pal, which you know is my favorite horror book ever and that I'm going to do for our Halloween episode. Yes. But for the most part, I liked it a lot. My only real gripes are all the Christian metaphors, but that's just like personal bias. Also, the climax of the book, like I said, it's a huge chunk of the book and it's all kind of happening at once. And it's told in very short chapters that jump perspectives really quickly. And it made me glad that I was reading it in kind of huge chunks at a time. Because I feel like if I just sat down for like 10 minutes to read, I would have started to get frustrated after doing that a few times because... It took forever to get back to certain storylines because I had to jump around to so many perspectives. But overall, I would give it a four out of five uh, tree branches that stroke your hair while you fall asleep. It sounds... I can usually get on board with anything that's going to have people with sort of their eyes and mouths slowed shut. I feel like it's a very used form of imagery, but it's effective. So, if you were a character in The Imaginary Friend... Would you have died? No, because not a lot of people die in it. Actually, I don't really think basically anyone dies. I mean, obviously, like David from 50 years ago and like all that shit. But because they defeat the devil, everyone just kind of goes back to normal and lives happily ever after, except Mary Kay, who's pregnant with the devil's child. But... I mean, she might survive that childbirth and maybe she'll be one of those women who has an orgasm during labor. She might have a great time. Mm-hmm. It happens. God. Uh, would you die and don't hang up? Um, I don't really know how to answer that because, like I said, there's only a couple people in the movie and theoretically only one of them survives. So I guess those odds wouldn't be in my favor I don't know that I would get myself into that situation necessarily because I sort of find those type of pranking things to be kind of dumb. But I guess considering everybody else dies, I guess I would be dead. But yeah, I don't know. Of boredom, maybe. God. Well, if you would like to alleviate your own boredom, you can find us on social media at Second to Die Pod on Instagram and Twitter and on Goodreads, where you can see what I'm reading next week. You can read along with me and it'll be like a little book club. You can also email us at Second to Die Pod at gmail.com. Questions, comments, concerns, episode suggestions like the one that I did this week. 
uh, which we do appreciate. And obviously, I will take them seriously. And also, please don't forget to rate, like, subscribe, all that stuff. It lets us know that people are listening and that people are enjoying themselves or comment on things that you may like us to work on or change or improve. Just be gentle. I have a lot of feelings. (laughs) And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.